Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature scientific boycotts, tricorders, and the play is the thing. But first up, here's the news with Larissa Savas. With a keen interest in intellectual disability, it was only natural then that an article in this area of interest caught my eye. The article was related to Rett syndrome, a progressive neurodevelopmental disorder that predominantly affects females due to an X-linked dominant mode of inheritance. It occurs mainly due to a loss of function mutation in the gene encoding methyl CPG binding protein 2, or the MECP2 gene. The MECP2 gene generates the synthesis of methylcytosine binding protein 2, which is required for brain development and acts as a biochemical switch to either increase or turn off gene expression. As the MECP2 gene fails to function correctly in individuals with Rett syndrome, insufficient amounts or structurally abnormal forms of the protein are produced, and this may cause other genes to be abnormally expressed. Mutations in the CDKL5 and Netrin G1 genes have also been associated with Rett syndrome. The syndrome is characterised by a deceleration in development, such that while growth and development is normal initially, brain and head growth slows, unsupported walk is slow to achieve or remains unachieved, and loss of acquired fine motor intellectual and communication abilities occurs by the first or second year of life. Affected children lose interest in their surroundings, ability to speak, manipulate objects and play, and repetitive movements of the hands and other parts of the body appear due to a decline in neuromotor function. Those affected also suffer from seizures and respiratory dysfunction. Currently, there is no cure for Rett syndrome, although there are treatments available to manage symptoms. Recently, researchers at Oregon Health and Science University used a mouse model of Rett syndrome to determine the effects of acute intermittent hypoxia, or periods of low oxygen on brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF production, in brainstem neurons of wild-type mice and MECP2 knockout mice. It was found that BDNF is significantly less expressed in mutant brainstem neurons under hypoxic conditions than in normal neurons, which considerably increase BDNF production when exposed to a respiratory challenge. Neurotrophins such as BDNF promote neuron survival, development and function. BDNF has previously been shown to be important in the consolidation of neuronal pathways responsible for cardiorespiratory function. It is also essential for neuroplasticity, learning and memory. Thus, this finding may be significant in the development of a treatment for Rett syndrome. Have you ever watched Star Trek and wanted a tricorder? Well, maybe soon you'll be able to have one. There is now the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. The same people that brought you the X Prize Space Prize for getting the first company manned into space 
now have a prize for the first mobile wireless diagnostic machine. That's right. Just like the tricorder in Star Trek, they want a device you can hold in your hand and use to diagnose one of 15 diseases. So this is a $10 million prize put out by Qualcomm, which is a company that makes CPUs for mobile phones and tablets. And it's open to companies who are invited to spend as much money and time as they like over the next few years to build one of these devices and then subject it for qualifying rounds to see if they qualify for the prize. So the problem that they see is that there are not enough qualified and skilled doctors and nurses available to everybody in the world that needs medical care. So they want a way to automate the basics, the very, very basics, so that people can diagnose some of the major things that could be wrong and seek medical help when they need to or treat themselves if it's simple enough to treat themselves. And so they're looking at expertise from sensors, from internet access to perhaps artificial intelligence engines remotely, and ways of putting what a doctor does, what a nurse does, what a skilled medical practitioner does when they look at someone, when they examine them, and be able to diagnose some basic illnesses. Not everything, because there's only so much a machine can do, but some basic stuff. And ultimately, if you were to carry these around, it might get long-term medical history from you. And that might be even more use in diagnosing things. So it's very vague. They've got very definite specifications of what they want, but nothing about how it's going to be done because that's up to the people who go for the prize. So in a few years' time, if the competition is successful, we may all be able to have a tricorder. Or at least there may be tricorders out there in the third world or generally where there's a lack of doctors. Because at the moment, if you do need medical care, you pretty much have to go and see a doctor. And then you have to queue up because there's always big bottlenecks around doctors because there's only so many of them and there's so many of the rest of us. So this looks like a wonderful idea. Previously, the X Prize has been used for all sorts of things. There's also an M Prize, the Methuselah Prize, for people who can make mice live longer than normal. And generally, the whole concept of offering prizes to industry seems to be a great way to motivate teams of engineers in companies to contribute to the social good. And finally, zombie fish poison gets some research funding. The University of Texas Marine Science Institute in Port Aransas has joined an international team of researchers to study ciguatera, the world's most common source of seafood poisoning. The poison is one of the ingredients used in Haiti to make real zombies. I have a personal interest, having been chronically zombified by ciguatera poisoning for nearly 10 years. The $4 million grant will fund a five-year study to better understand dinoflagellates, the microscopic algae that produce ciguatera toxins, focusing on the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. The algae, which can attach to seaweed, reefs or the legs of oil rigs, are eaten by small fish, which in turn are eaten by larger fish, and so on up the food chain. So you get higher and higher concentrations of the toxins collecting in predator fish, such as barracuda or grouper, that live in artificial and natural reefs and tropical waters. This is biomagnification. Ciguatera, which can cause severe vomiting, diarrhoea and neurological symptoms, 
poisons tens of thousands of people worldwide every year, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The symptoms can last days, months or years, but rarely result in death. There's no antidote, and no amount of cooking can kill it. Marine Science Institute's Deanna Erdner says that little's known about Ciguatera. They want to find out whether or not these dinoflagellate algae are moving around and where they're moving to. So they're looking at the genes in the algae to find out where they come from. They want to find out what makes the algae grow, its effect on marine life, if it's increasing its range, and which fish are most likely to harbour the toxins. It's found in more than 400 fish, all of which are almost immune to the toxin. Most cases occur in the tropical and subtropical regions. Reports of Ciguatera poisoning are rare in the northern Gulf of Mexico off the Texas coast. It's fairly common in Florida, where the sale of barracuda is banned in some areas. There are no confirmed cases of Ciguatera poisoning in Red Snapper there, but it's been found in Red Snapper in other parts of the world. One of the concerns is whether global warming might create more favourable conditions for Ciguatera, which would result in a greater risk for seafood consumers around the world. Ultimately, they'd like to learn enough to predict or prevent the risk from Ciguatera entirely. Next up, Victoria Bond and Mark West talk about the expansion of the universe and the scientific boycott. So as part of the Sydney Festival, which is on at the moment, I went to the Sydney Theatre Company and saw A History of Nearly Everything, which should not be confused with A Short History of Nearly Everything, which was written by Bill Bryson. This was actually a play that took a concept to the very limit. Uh, that's a pun intended. The idea is that um, it starts off with a monologue of a woman explaining that the universe is expanding and that scientists posit that eventually the universe will stop expanding and start collapsing. And this would mean that time starts running backwards and so she will be alive again and then her mother will be alive again and her grandmother will be alive again. And the play sort of starts off with this concept and starts on the you know 27th of January, which is when I saw it, or if you see it next week, the 3rd of February or whatever, tells you the news of the day and then goes back in time and goes through these crucial life events for humanity. And then it takes it even further. It goes back through evolution and it goes back to the very Big Bang. And I thought that was a very interesting concept because science has changed its tune a few times about this, hasn't it? It certainly has. Yeah, we've got, there's all sorts of ideas in cosmology. There's the idea of the expansion and the collapse. There's so that expands, it collapses, it expands, it collapses, and it just does that forever. Or that it just expands and keeps on expanding until there's nothing left. So will there be another Big Bang? We don't know. I mean, currently, 
since we've discovered that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, if that continues, I mean, we don't really understand why it's accelerating. If that keeps going, then there'll be no crunch at the end. It'll just, the universe the big, will thin out. The big nothing. There's the a name for nothing. it, isn't it? There's a big something. I, well, I okay. It no, it's worse than that. Actually, okay. Heat death. The universe goes through heat death eventually. The heat death it? is the old-fashioned death of the universe. This is a bit worse than a heat death because because the acceleration of the expansion of the universe means that it will get faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. It will eventually expand to the point so quickly that the space between the particles in your atoms could be affected, in which case you get the big rip where mm. all matter goes... Yeah, even protons and neutrons will... De- be ripped apart into be ripped their constituents apart. and then, yes, right, everything gets ripped apart. We don't even really understand what's sticking everything together at the moment. Well, we think we do. We think we do, but that's just a theory. We don't understand gravity. We know how gravity works, but we don't know why it works. So our theories of gravity don't match up with our theories of everything else, and that's one of the things a Large Hadron Collider is supposed to help us shed light on. But if we don't find the particles that they've predicted, then we need a new theory. And so when the big rip happens, is that when gravity stops having any effect? Is that the same thing? No, I think gravity is still working, but the expansion is, is so quick that uh, that that gravity is... Uh, your, your particles are too far apart to have any effect on each other. And there's not even particles. I well, mean, if everything's ripped, if everything's in the big blender <laughs> of the rip, then there's nothing left to affect everything. Everything's down to whatever you know, quark, soup, vacuum that it could be, and nothing can affect anything else ever again. So I should write to this playwright and say, your play was wonderful, but you've got some but. facts wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Unless he knows something we don't know. <laughs> Which is why people hate scientists. <laughs> it's well, very poetic, though. It's a, it's an interesting uh, literary or um, device for the, for the play. But is that the way, let's say even if there was a big crunch, would time go backwards? Well, that's what I was thinking. I, that's not how I understood it. It doesn't necessarily have to, does it? Is that, I what's the concept? I don't think it would have to go backwards. Um, because it's a fourth dimension. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not a... I'm not sure I understand how it all works, to be honest, because I know that everything on the first three dimensions would, would move, but yes. would the fourth dimension be affected by a collapse? I don't think it has to, but if you look at the arrow of time as being the expansion of the universe, as being a measure of the expan- of the forwards motion of time, then having it apparently run backwards might make you think that the whole thing was going to run backwards. And mm. I don't expect it would, but maybe something would go strange. Um, we're talking really esoteric cosmology mm. here. and Well, some very interesting implications for consciousness and whatnot. Because let's and cause imagine, and effect. Well, let's imagine you're living through this and cause and effect, right? Yeah, all that. Well, it was and interesting. And all sorts of things. Yeah, it was interesting because in the play they touched on that. They said, with every new experience that I would have in my life, I would become less and less like myself until eventually I re-become a child completely dependent on my parents and crawl back into the womb. <sighs> That's like the uh, Benjamin Button and thing. Yeah. yeah, rain would fall upwards. Everything yeah. would be opposite. Mm. Philip K. Dick's written about this sort of thing and a couple of other science fiction writers. But, of course, if the universe has time running backwards, you wouldn't be able to tell, of course, because your consciousness goes forwards. And surely the events don't get replayed because, as far as you're concerned, um, time's going forwards. Like, why why would it be the same events? 
unless it's all unwinding, in which case it's not really. It just we, seems like it's not. The you'd remember them operation. then forget, wouldn't you? <laughs> that's what would happen. You'd remember but forget. Mm. You'd see rain going upwards, but think that's normal because you've learnt it before, and eventually you'd unlearn it when mm. you become two years old again. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> So once again, that play is called A History of Everything. It's currently playing as part of the Sydney Festival at the Sydney Theatre Company. The text is by Alexander Devrent and Jory Smet, and it's playing until the 5th of February. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. If there's something you'd like to discuss, please just don't make a fuss. My data's all clearly in line. Every figure laid out just fine. Is there something that unsettles you? Perhaps from a personal point of view. I'll admit it's not easy to digest. But this material has been vetted by the best. There's nothing we can predict with certainty. But it's not gambling, it's truth's closest proximity. We're open to alternate theories as well. But come, let's prove them and bid our conflict farewell. Can you see the power of hearing you working for me? Every day and every, every night Do you see it, hear the sound, do you know? Is it clear, are you down with the power The power of peer review For me and for you If a scientist does bad stuff Peer review will call their bluff That's peer review Scare tactics may work on a few, but ultimately they just won't do. Use science to see you through. Just let go of your preconceived view. The truth truly is blind, exposed to procedures designed. Our knowledge can't be confined, it's more than. More than the sum of our minds. And there's a petition going around for a boycott of El Salvia, a publisher of scientific journals. So, Ian, can you tell me what this petition's about? Basically, El Salvia is publishing publicly funded research, and they're charging a lot of money for it. So the journals are very expensive, and in addition to the journals being very expensive, libraries can't just buy a subscription to the journals they want. They have to buy a whole package of journals that include ones they don't want, and that means it's stupendously expensive. And if you're an individual who's trying to do some research, say, for a radio show, or for your own scientific research, you have to pay $30 per paper you can't just look it up online. So this publicly funded scientific research isn't publicly available to the people that funded it. 
you can't just look up a scientific paper unless it's on the Public Library of Science, which is a completely different publisher, or the scientist has leaked a PDF of the paper, which happens less and less now because they get basically slapped around for doing it because it's violating the copyright of the stuff that they wrote. And of course, the scientists don't get paid by the journal. So who so who publicly funds it? Because clearly they're, they can't be... They must only be about 5% publicly funded or something. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to charge people for it, right? So why... Okay. I think it is government funded. I think um, the US government does put a significant amount towards their publications because, right. you know, it's the whole idea of promoting science. But um, on top of that, I think it costs money to submit a journal. Mm. Uh, to so, submit so a paper if, to a journal. That's yeah, right. I believe so, so, yeah. so not only are the authors paying, but then they have to pay to purchase the journal. It's, it's a double whammy. There's no... The only people who would possibly profit from this would be the journal. Yes, I guess. But to, to play devil's advocate, I guess the journal needs to make its money. So perhaps it's not being funded very well. I don't, I don't know the, the, the numbers involved, you know. Ian? Well, the thing is, it's kind of traditional that magazines pay writers. Writers don't pay magazines. It's yes. the wrong way yep. around, right? It, it's something wrong there. And if you have any sort of problem with this publisher. If you're a library who tries to get a better deal or who complains, they cut off access to all their journals. Like, they don't negotiate. They've got an... That's what's known as sharp business practices. Similarly, they could refuse to publish your papers. Um, and think what that does to your career. So the only way to sort of beat this would be to publish elsewhere, I guess. But, exactly. But El Salvador have the distinguished journals. Well, you've got to realise that it's peer review. That's exactly it. So they've got a very strong peer review. They're very respected... Papers who get published in El Xavier have a right. very good reputation. But what's going on with the petition now is more and more prominent scientists are signing it, which really is kicking the legs right out under. That's right. If they're propped up by a body of distinguished peers and they all abandon it, then they'll have to change. Exactly. Well, the thing is, the people who do the peer review aren't paid. No, that's right. But the journal's worthless without the peer review. Part of the petition is that you can say, I will never peer review, I will never edit, and I will never write a paper for them. So it's all free labour, except, of course, if you pay to have your paper published, it's not even free. Mm. I can understand where this is coming from. I mean, just simply for I mean, individual subscribers, is one thing to pay $30 for a paper seems, seems particularly ludicrous, but the amount it costs libraries to get these uh, subscriptions is amazing amounts of money, incredible amounts of money. And on the petition page, they're also saying that El Xavier support measures such as the SOPA, the PIPA, and the Research Works Act, all of which aim to restrict the free exchange of information. So all these internet censorship bills that the US has put forward um, have been supported by this publisher. So that's another reason people are against it. I mean, basically, you should be able to look up scientific papers for free online. That's right. What's the point of doing science if it's not readily available for everyone to get inspired and get information? Otherwise, I mean, if you don't have access to El Xavier and you're researching something, someone might have already discovered what you're trying to research. I mean, it's, it's yes. completely ludicrous. It is. It's an old, old mm. model of publishing journals. And if other publishers like the Public Library of Science don't need it, then maybe El Xavier don't need it. It's very interesting because costs would be coming down for publishing, which presumably is their one of their major reasons why they charge people. I'm, I'm, I'm sure their CEO is not a multi-billionaire banker. 
you know esque. I'm like I'm sure that they're, they're not quite like that. Like, but that's presumably where their costs go into hardcover printing and and all that. And, that's got to be the cost. Is definitely got to be the printing and distribution to libraries. But of course, libraries we get it mostly electronically these days. That's right. So if you can cover that, which you can't, you know, maybe maybe it costs a little bit to have a database, maintain a database, sure. and that sort of thing. But it can't be that much. But you know, it, it is funded by governments. Yeah, that's that's right. And publishing doesn't cost that much. There's, I really can't see, I can't see the point of charging paper authors to submit. And as well as charging people to read. Yeah. Maybe bit... someone can chime in and explain to me why why this happens. But I think it's traditional. I think basically they were in the right place at the right time when there was only paper journals available and it cost money. And so, of course, they had to collect money. But it doesn't make sense in the current world because it doesn't cost so much. And besides which, most of their labor costs are free. The editors are free, mm. the peer reviewers are free, and the writers, submitters of papers are free. So given that, I mean, imagine, a bit, well, look at the magazines that don't pay their writers, that don't pay their editors. They don't have a lot of costs. And, if and, you're and a, they're not publicly funded. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Larissa Savas, Mark West and Victoria Bond. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>